Welcome to Victorian Samplings, the podcast that speaks with artists, curators, scholars, and crafters about Victorian objects and the stories they tell. I'm Vanessa Warren, and in this episode, we speak with three leading figures in Victorian studies to learn about how 19th century women left their mark, literally and figuratively. Jessie Cron speaks with Dr. Deborah Lutz about penciled inscriptions George Eliot made in a book she treasured. I speak with Dr. Lorraine Jansen Kuistra about the remarkable accomplishments of the late Victorian author and wood engraver Clements Houseman. And Anne Hung shares her interview with Dr. Talia Schaffer about a book of appreciations authored by women authors for women authors. Let's begin. I'm Jessie Cron. Hi, I'm Dr. Deborah Lutz, and I'm a professor of English uh, at the University of Louisville. Deborah, you've been thinking about and working on a special book that's been annotated where there are traces of the reader. Can you tell us about that book and its owner? Yes, this is a book that is resides currently at the Beinecke Library, which is part of Yale University, and it belonged to George Eliot, and it's a copy of William Wordsworth's The Prelude. And Wordsworth was a huge influence on George Eliot. She just felt very moved by Wordsworth's description of nature, of memory, um, of the relationship between memory, nature, and identity. And in, the pre- in her particular copy of the prelude, she uh, wrote an inscription. One of her husbands, her partner, one of her partners, uh, George Henry Lewis, also wrote an inscription. And she, the one thing that's interesting about this book is that she, she owned it for many years. I think it's 13 years. And she traveled with it at least once. We know she carried it with her to Germany. So the, the earliest manuscript um, is written at the end of the book. And this was written by George Henry Lewis. And it's just kind of uh, handwritten in pencil. And he says, read second time aloud to Polly. And Polly is a nickname for George Eliot. At Knighton, reclining on the cliff or in the grass, July 1867. So they went to this island in England to try to to restore their failing health. Um, George Eliot was struggling to write her long poem, The Spanish Gypsy, and which has echoes of Wordsworth. And one of the things I love about this inscription is the way that, I mean, first of all, he's reading it aloud to her. They're in a very particular place um, and the date is so specific. The inscription kind of brings alive the reading, the reading aloud together of of this book. And so the second inscription, which is much later, which is, which is written at the very beginning of the book, this is in George Eliot's handwriting. And it says, begun with Jay. Now Jay is John Cross, her second husband. Um, so many years later, she re- read this again with the second husband. Begun with Jay at Wildbad, which is in Germany. In our walk on a Sunday morning, July, 1880, finished August 23rd. She read this poem again aloud, with um, her second husband. And again, we have a, a place and a time period and a, and a sort of span of time as to when they started it and ended it because it's a fairly long poem. So once again, we have this wonderful specificity of this is where and when this poem was read. This is who I read it with. This was the situation. And I think there's, it's just wonderful the way that these inscriptions both make the book itself a kind of relic of George Eliot and her partners, but also a, a relic of, of reading.
reading, right? A relic of a time and place of reading. It's interesting because many people might view annotations as a kind of defacement, but it seems like in George Eliot's case, these annotations built additional narratives onto existing ones in the text. What do you think about that? Is that accurate? Yes, I think that's true. And there was a time when, and this still might be the case, actually, when curators and librarians and archivists would actually erase um, or wash off marginalia or inscriptions or annotations because it was seen as a defacement of the book, as a, as a kind of way of ruining the book. And of course, we're told, as you know, we're, not, we're told not to write in library, library books, or when we're children, we're often told not to write in books. But I think one of the main differences is, well, it's, it's the amount of time that passes, right? So books that are 100 years old, 200 years old, 300 years old, now, um, when we find those books, uh, especially if you're a scholar, if you're a literary scholar or a history of the book scholar, you want to know, like, that's a piece of history. You want to know what, was, what were, were these people thinking when they wrote in these books, you know, what sorts of interactions with the book were they having? But of course, when you have a, a, someone who's then becomes famous, like George Eliot, then it really mat- begins to matter what they wrote in their books. I mean, if George Eliot was a person who was unknown completely, well, we might not even have this book anymore available to us. It might have been sold or thrown away or, or wa- like I said, erased. I mean, it's, both of them are in pencil, so it would be easy to erase them. So I think a lot of it, most of it has to do with the fact that George Eliot's a famous person, a famous writer. And so we want, we really want to know what she wrote in her books, how she used her books, but also their archives like the Beinecke have these books available to scholars. What can these annotations teach us about George Eliot's life? And more generally, do these things offer a glimpse into Victorian culture and Victorian ways of life? Yeah, in terms of George Eliot, I think I mean, this is kind of obvious, but I think it's worth worth saying she read aloud with people, right? She read aloud with her partners. I think that today it's somewhat unusual to be reading aloud books with people. You know, we usually read quietly to ourselves alone. We don't read aloud to a group of people or to a, one person. So I think it's wonderful to know that she was reading these books aloud or she was having them read, read aloud to her. And this was quite common in the 19th century and earlier, in some cases, because people were illiterate. I mean, certainly not in the case of George Eliot and her partners, who were very literary, literary obviously. Um, but there are many, the, a large portion of the population in the 19th century and earlier were, was illiterate. And so the way that you would know the news is someone would read you a newspaper aloud, um, would read you a book aloud, especially poetry was read aloud, and novels too. So that that's also seems important to me to know that George Eliot read things aloud. I think it also makes sense with poetry, and this again is perhaps lost to some extent today, that poetry was meant to be something that was recited aloud or read aloud. We don't do this so much today, or very rarely do we, but there was a time when that's what poetry was for, in a sense. You were, you were meant to hear it in the ear aloud, and often coming from someone else's voice. And so we definitely see this as well with Eliot. And I think we also see in her writing, not just in her poetry, but also in her novels, she's such a beautiful writer. And I think she is very aware of what her writing sounds like to the ear and when read aloud, Um, which again is something that we don't care as much about. Like, what does it sound like when it's read aloud? Um, And it would be, I mean, it would be really fun to read Middlemarch aloud with someone. It would take a long time. I've never done that, but I would do that. I think that would be really interesting and fun. (laughs) Yeah. One thing for the bucket list, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I'm interested in the way that these marginalia, as you're saying, signal ways that George Eliot connected with other people. 
I'm curious about how that might transfer to the ways that 21st century readers connect to people of the past through things like dog earring, underlining, or annotations. How do these affect interactions in the way that a pristine copy might not? Yeah, I know. Per- I know personally. I love used books. I love old. I love old books. Period. And I love finding them in thrift stores and antique stores and bookshops and buying them. And I love to see the traces of readers, whether it's nineteenth century or. I mean, I don't like like yellow highlighting, <laughs> but I mean, if it if it's legitimate sort of right, you know, thoughtful writing, um, and in particular, if it's someone's name and in, in the on the flyleaf with a date and a place. Um, and especially if it's old, like if we can say that it's 19th century. Um, I mean, for me personally, it, it gives the book a history, a past. Um, it's a set of relationships that inheres in the volume. Like I feel close to some stranger, you know, that I, who I know nothing about. Um, and this is true of library books too. I mean, there's a lot of, one can, if you go to a collection that has 19th century books and, or older books, a library, and this is true of my current school library, you can find readers' annotations, again, mostly anonymous. But I personally, and I think other people must feel this way too, and I know they do, I know some people who feel this way, um, it does feel like there's a community of readers, and you think, someone else read this many years ago, and they thought this about it, they loved this, they hated this, they, you know, whatever, um, whatever they felt. And, and I think this is true also of contemporary annotation, it can be true of contemporary annotation. Um, I, you know, someone who wrote recently in a book, in a library book, for instance, um, I used to have a colleague at a different job, who would always write in library books, and then I would check that book out, and I would recognize his comments <laughs> in the book. I knew that he had written those comments. (laughs) To move to my final question for you, for George Eliot, Marginalia served as a kind of diary tracing where she was in her life. I'm interested in the multiplicity of uses that she found in her volume. What do you think of a text being a volume of poetry and a kind of record of the reader? Yes, thank you. This is one of the things that I love about about Marginalia um, and inscriptions and annotations of any sort is that some of them can really feel like the person is using the book as a notebook or as a diary, as you say, right? So here, I mean, the inscription that we have here, but also in some of the other Elliot volumes I've looked at, um, books that she owned and wrote in, um, you, you can feel like she wants to record her thoughts and feelings right then. And they're connected to the text that's printed in the book, but they're not always directly connected. It's often, sometimes it's just it's a saying, here I was at this time, I was reading this. This is what I was doing you know, on June 5th, 1835, I was reading this, right? So yeah, there is a way that um, the volume uh, becomes like a diary, a recording of, you know, of what was happening right then. There's not, there's another book that George Eliot um, owned that's also at the Beinecke at Yale. It's called The Linnet's Life, and it was given to her by her father. And I won't read the inscription, it's kind of long, but she, she talks about her father and how, um, it was given to her by her father and that makes it a really important relic. And when she dies, she wants this to be kept as a way of, of remembering her. And so there's an interesting way the book actually kind of replaces her body. You know, if, it's like, if you want to remember me, this is the object that will most, that I most want you to treasure as a, as a remains, as remains of me, you know? So I think there's a way that her identity becomes so, intertwined with books as physical objects, not just, I mean, in the Linnet's life, it doesn't matter really weirdly what's in the book. 
I mean, in terms of the text and the pictures, I mean, it matters a little bit, but not that much. It's really more about like this book marks that moment of giving from my father. It marks our relationship and therefore it's dear to me. And if you want to remember me after I'm dead, this will, this is what you should use, you know? So there is, there is a way that the, the books and the writing in books, the handwriting in books just take on such a weighty meaning of memory and love and treasuring and the postmortem and immortality. And I think all of these things come together. Thanks very much, Deborah. Thank you to Deborah Lutz and thank you to Jesse Cron for bringing us that interview. We turn now to the career of Clemens Hausman, a woman whose achievements as a wood engraver have captivated Lorraine Jansen Kuistra. Lorraine is a professor of English at Ryerson University, and on a sunny afternoon in early May, she shared her knowledge of wood engraving, collaboration, and Hausman's career with me. Here's our conversation. Thank you for joining me, Lorraine. It's a pleasure to be here, Vanessa. Can I ask you to introduce us to wood engraving, maybe to its methods or materials? Of course. Wood engraving is is the ubiquitous craft that is all over the 19th century, and it always amazes me how much more I had to learn about it, and I think that's true for a lot of people. One of the things that makes the 19th century wood engraving trade take off in the early 19th century and be able to reproduce what such fine engravings was the fact that they worked on the end grain with very fine tools. Prior to that, the term woodcut was used and it was in place since the, the Middle Ages, really, since the invention of the printing press and before. But woodcuts could only produce much rougher kinds of prints because they were on the side plank of the wood rather than the end grain. And the engraver used a knife rather than a fine steel tipped engraver. So it's still a black and white linear print, but the way you achieve it and the what you see from it at the end of it is going to look very different. So woodcuts were used a lot in broadsides, in chapbooks, in popular print, but the wood engraving method that the Victorians used was really part of really part of industrial print, even though it was a manual process. One of the interesting things about wood engraving is the size of the block that most people worked with. And it was usually boxwood, sometimes pear wood, but usually boxwood. And the box tree is small. So the size of the ends was always about three or three by four, four by five, maybe about the size of your hand, depending. That would be about as big as it would get. So the wood engravings we have are all indexical to the wood block so that the size of the print you see is either the size of the wood block or you know that if it's bigger than your hand, <laughs> probably a number of blocks have been bolted together uh, to make a larger one. So that's that's the medium. The method is using a series of steel-tipped gravers. They all have wooden handles. One of the interesting things about these engraving tools is that they were all made to measure, kind of like golf clubs today. They were, you know, golf clubs vary in, in length, 
for for the user and the, and even the grip might change same thing with the the wood engraving tools the gravers the length the weight of them depended on the user and of course the user using them many hours a day day after day after day the print of their hand or the shape of their palm was practically on that graver too because of the size of the block the engravers had to incise very small very fine lines into the block. So they needed a lot of light. This is mostly being done before electricity. So they usually worked on a table. They had a little leather pouch or or pillow, I don't know what to call it, on which they kept the block so that they could turn it around and around. And they had a glass of water in front of a lamp to reflect the light to increase the light, which is amazing to me. And they usually also wore a visor just so they could focus on that little tiny inch that they were working on. Tricky thing about wood engraving is that it's done in reverse. So the image that you want printed had to be drawn backwards, so to speak, on the wood block. And then it's also cut and relief. So for every line that the artist drew on the wood block, the wood engraver would have to cut two lines because what the wood engraver had to do was excavate the negative space around the line so that the line would stand up like a ridge to take the ink when it was printed. You've been exploring the work of a remarkably talented Victorian wood engraver, Clements Hausman. Can you tell us a little bit about Clements Hausman? Yes, I never lose an opportunity to talk about Clemens Hausman because she is fabulous. One of the things I learned when I was beginning to research her is that 20th century printmakers, um, people who's, who are well known in 20th century print, like Leonard Baskin, whose work is collected at Princeton, uh, think she was the best 19th century wood engraver. So, but she's virtually unknown. And indeed, she's very, there are there were not many women wood engravers of her caliber relative to the hundreds and hundreds of men who followed the trade. And there's there's good reason for that. So Clements may not have been able to train in her profession, uh, had it not been that she had a younger brother who was going to London to train as an artist. And the family thought he needed looking after. So they sent Clements, who was five years older than Lawrence, with her younger brother Lawrence to London when he studied art. And that's what gave her the opportunity to study wood engraving at the same time. She chose the profession herself. She wanted to have a livelihood that she could depend on. Uh, and that would give her satisfaction. She liked working with her hands. She was a very tactile person. So from that moment on, when they moved to London, they lived together for the rest of their lives. Uh, and they lived well into their 90s. So from their early 20s to their mid-90s, they lived together. And they collaborated artistically, and they also collaborated politically, because they were both very active uh, in various causes, particularly in feminist causes. Hausman did freelance work, including for the graphic and the Illustrated London News. 
Could you tell us about that? Yes, it was, um, it came about because when she was trained in wood engraving at the South Lambeth School, she studied with Charles Roberts, who was one of the master engravers in London. And she had the disadvantage of not having opportunities for apprenticeship the way male wood engravers did. But he saw her talent and he hired her on a freelance piece basis. But unlike other many other women engravers, she did not work from home, piecework from home. She went to the, the graphic office to work with the other wood engravers, although like her training, the workspace would have been segregated. That was Victorian practice. And the worker, the employer, Roberts, also had a separate way of treating the women workers and the men workers and what he wanted, and perhaps uh, rightly so, he wanted the women to be able to leave work in time to catch the last tram home. But Clement's husband did not believe in any kind of sex distinctions. She refused to leave in time to catch the last tram home. She Instead, she sent a telegram to her brother saying, working late, and she would work until the job was done and then walk home through the streets of London at two or three or four in the morning. Lorraine, maybe we could talk about one of the collaborations between the siblings, the Houseman siblings, by talking about the 1896 novella, The Werewolf. And I know you've been working with a very talented group of students to develop an open access edition of The Werewolf that our listeners can explore. But could you talk about this novella the wood engravings, her role as author, any aspects of their collaboration? I'd really be happy to because I think collaboration is at the heart of the whole werewolf story and how it came about. In fact, Clements first told the story to the women in her wood engraving class as an oral tale. And they loved it. They they got a, a thrill of horror and excitement. And of course, one of the reasons is that the werewolf herself is a woman. It's a female werewolf. It was Lawrence who urged Clements to first get it published in a magazine. It was published in Atalanta as a Christmas supplement. And then later on negotiated with John Lane, with for whom he worked as a designer. To, uh, to publish it in that form. So this collaboration, she wrote the story, he illustrated it with six illustrations and a title page, and then she engraved those illustrations. So the, the level of collaboration is, is uh, very intense. Perhaps not entirely unlike that of Dante Gabriel Rossetti and Christina Rossetti over the Goblin Market and its illustrations, but much closer in terms of a balance of power relations, a balance of respect, and, and, and even a balance of sharing living quarters. So as we come to the end of our time together, Lorraine, I'm wondering if I could ask you to reflect on what you value about 19th century wood engravings. You know, there are a number of things I really value. One is wood engravings have taught me to see things, I can't say like a Victorian, but trying to understand how Victorians saw things, it's easier but if you really study their black and white linear art 
the, the, the medium that represented their world in the news, but also represented their world of literature in so many ways. And I think there's a, what I call a technology of vision, a kind of a linear uh, language that is part of the wood engraving, wood engraved illustrations. They provide a way to, to see and to know and to understand. And I, I really enjoy working with them and, and uh, tracing that, tracing those lines in another way. I'm also fascinated by the fact that so many of these, the, the craft of the wood engraving itself has been lost to us. And so we think about this illustration by Millet, but we don't necessarily think about the engraver who spent perhaps as much time uh, reproducing the image with no, sometimes no signature at all, with complete anonymity. Signature might say, for example, Dalziel, but that's a corporate signature, not an individual signature. Or perhaps, as is the case with Clemens Houseman, there might be no signature at all. She would engrave the signature of the artist every time, but she only engraved her own signature on a few of the illustrations. So in The Werewolf, for example, only two of the six are signed by Clemens as well as by Lawrence. I find that fascinating, that erasure of, of labor and art and self and i want to i want to bring bring light back into that that practice lorraine in your work you've described wood engraving as a craft and an art and a technology and i think that alone gives us a great deal to think about thank you for this conversation thank you for inviting me vanessa i really appreciate the opportunity I'm Anne Hung, and today I'm joined by Dr. Talia Schaffer. Hi, I'm Talia Schaffer. I teach at the City University of New York, and I'm working on communities of care and on feminism. And one of the objects I've run across that has really interested me is a book called Women Novelists of Queen Victoria's Reign. Women Novelists of Queen Victoria's Reign seems to have a self-explanatory title, but could you tell our listeners a bit about this book? I'd be happy to. Yeah, so the full title is actually a little more interesting. It's Woman Novelists of Queen Victoria's Reign, colon, A Book of Appreciations. So between the beginning and end of the colon, you can hear two things conflicting. Do we define novelists by when they lived, or do we define them in terms of our attitude towards them, the appreciations? And so within this book, we actually have a lot of dissension different authors uh, take different approaches. Some use their their chapters to talk about biographical information about the woman they're describing. Some use it to judge their craft. These are chapters about women writers by fellow women writers. So some of them are writing as sort of rivals of the, of the woman they're outlining or as mentees of the woman they're talking about. So sometimes there are genuine appreciations, as in she was a lovely person, but we also see the beginnings of modern literary criticism, the ones who adhere to the woman novelist of Queen Victoria's reign part. We see the beginning of trying to define women by genre or by innovations or uh, outlining how women could write that would be different from how men wrote. 
That's so interesting. And you've published very influential studies on a range of topics of importance to Victorian literature and culture. How does this book feature into the research you're doing now? Oh, well, thank you. It features in a couple of ways. So first of all, I have a book that's going to be out in September called Communities of Care, The Social Ethics of Victorian Fiction. And that book is about relationality. It argues that Victorian subjects lived collective lives, and we need to look at how people met each other's needs in social coalitions in fiction, but also that communal mutual care governs today's practices. And one of the arguments I make in communities of care is that women in particular often participated in joint writing practices, and they did something I call composite writing or synthetic writing, and that it's a synthesis of multiple voices. So to find a book that was co-authored by nine women is fascinating. And I'm hoping when the pandemic is over, I can do some research and find out how they set it up. So I I don't know, like, were the women assigned to each of their subjects? Did they choose the subjects? Did the women get together and decide to put this book together? Were they uh, solicited to do it? I'm really curious. But the other way that this fits into my work is that the next book I'm going to work on is about feminist practices in Victorian studies. I feel like in feminist criticism, We're still very much within second wave feminist work by the people who founded our field, Elaine Showalter and Gilbert and Gubar. And I'd love to try to consolidate recent work in feminism that tries to think beyond and past that for an era of gender fluidity. uh, And how do we think about women's writing today? And so this book really interests me because it's I think the origin or one of the very first places where women writers are trying to thrash out what criticism would look like for women writers. And it's all really unsettled. And so it's kind of marks the beginning point of the tradition that I'm hoping to write about. Well, and one of the women authors of this book is stated as Mrs. Alexander, but her name and her life were actually a little more complicated. Who exactly was Mrs. Alexander? So Mrs. Alexander, really interesting. She was born Annie French. She was Irish, and she married a man named Alexander Hector in 1858. Alexander Hector was an explorer and an archaeologist who excavated Assyria and participated in efforts to find the source of the Nile, incidentally. But Hector didn't like her publishing novels, and so she suppressed her writing until he died in 1875. Once he died, she adopted this pseudonym, uh, Mrs. Alexander, but you'll remember his name is Alexander Hector, so it's his first name, not his last name. Her name was actually Mrs. Hector. It would be like saying Mrs. John or Mrs. Bob or something like that. It's not a legal name. She also changes her first name, Anne, to Annie so as to retain her Irishness, and one of the things I found out is that she had four children. And the children were named Ida, Alexander, Annie, and Mary. So I'm also wondering now, did she rename herself after her children, which would be a really cool way to think about it. Yeah, it sort of reframes not only her role as an author and a woman author in the 19th century, but also as a mother who is producing creatively. So that's really interesting. Exactly. You know, so again, coming from second wave feminism, we think, oh, somebody published as Mrs. So-and-so, Mrs. Humphrey Ward. We tend to see that as a patriarchal imposition, that these women couldn't publish under their own names. And that was very tragic. And so when I first came across this page, I saw it as, oh, she was forced to write as Mrs. Alexander under her husband's name. But then she broke free and she wrote Annie Hector. But it's not that at all, because 
Hector was her married name and Alexander was, she divides her husband's name in half and she uses one for a name that is written in quotation marks and the other for a name that is written freehand. And so she's sort of claiming parts of her husband's name. But I love the idea that instead of naming herself as a kind of possession of her husband, she's naming herself according to her children, which is a way that would totally make sense for a woman writer, but that we never think of it moving in that direction to have your name affiliate yourself with your children and not with your husband. And you noticed a few other interesting details about this signature page, page 290 in the book. Could you tell us a bit more about what you found and what you think it might signify? Sure. Well, the first thing you have to know is there's a running head at the top that says Mrs. Norton. That's about Caroline Norton, who is famous as one of the preeminent advocates for women's rights and marriage. She had a horrible, horrible marriage, and she pioneered some of the attempts to get divorce law going. And one of the things I noticed when I first read this piece by Mrs. Alexander was that she can't get away from Mrs. Norton's um, marital activism. And I said, why is that? Well, it turns out that Mrs. Alexander herself had a divorce case with uh, Hector, Alexander Hector. And Alexander Hector and Mr. Norton died in the same year, 1875. And it turns out that she sued for divorce, which was very unusual, on the ground of cruelty and adultery, but the matter was compromised and they had a legal separation instead. So when I look at this page now, knowing that, and I see Mrs. Norton at the top and Mrs. Alexander at the bottom, and I think those two names rhyme, you know, there are two names that commemorate a relation to a husband that the woman didn't choose and tried to get away from. But what I love is that she puts quotation marks around Mrs. Alexander and puts it in parentheses, and it's tiny print. So it is as different, as distanced and marginalized as typography can make it in this period, you know, which is just really interesting. And she also drops the misses. So there's no misses in when she writes Annie Hector. If she had written Mrs. Anne Hector or Mrs. Hector, that would have been a confirmation that she was one with her husband, but she drops the missus. She is Annie, and the last name is Hector in her written version. And the final thing I will say about it is that there's this huge flourish underneath, which at first I didn't really think about very much. But once I started looking at it, I started thinking that it's a flourish. She's signing her name with a flourish. And it's almost like that line visually separates the halves of her identity, the Annie Hector from the Mrs. Alexander. But it's not a straight line. You know, it shows a life that has curved. And so I think if you think about how do you write the line of your life, our lives are not really linear. And so I've come to love that little flourish as a kind of representation of the unevenness and personality and experience with which a life can have a bump and that can become part of how you identify yourself. Thank you so much for your time today and for telling us about this really interesting book and author. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Thank you to Anne for that interview, and thank you to our expert guests, Talia Schaffer, Lorraine Jansen-Kuistra, and Deborah Lutz. To learn more about the topics explored by our guests, please visit the Crafting Communities website, craftingcommunities.net. You'll find links to suggested readings and resources, including a link to a digital open-access Cove edition of The Werewolf, created by Lorraine and her students. Thanks go, as always, to Jesse Cron and to Anne Hung for their work on this episode. Thank you, Natalie Lovetri, for your transcript, 
and thank you Madison George Burlett for your digital media work. Anne and Madison contributed to this podcast from Victoria, British Columbia, unceded territory of the Lekwungen-speaking peoples, traditional land of the Songhees, Esquimo, and Wasanich peoples. Jesse, Natalie, and I worked on this episode in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is Treaty 1 territory, traditional land of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and homeland of the Métis Nation. Victorian Samplings is the podcast of the Crafting Communities Project. Crafting Communities is supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Victorian Studies Association of Western Canada, and the Universities of Alberta, Manitoba, and Victoria. The project is a collaboration between Andrea Corda, Mary Elizabeth Layton, and me, Vanessa Warren. We welcome your feedback. Email us at crafting at uvic.ca and follow us on Twitter at craftyvictorian. We hope you'll join us again soon to listen to Victorian samplings.